0: Hello beautiful people, welcome to this week's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. So glad uh, to have the guests with me today. Of course, regular contributor, Representative Emily Kornheiser. Hello, Emily. Good morning. Hello,
1: and good morning, Olga.
0: And uh, for our radio listeners, just so you know, Emily is sitting in one of the committee rooms in the State House right now.
1: Um, And it's remarkably sepia-toned. I'm wearing sepia tones. The lighting is sepia-toned. It's also very, very hot in here for some reason. So (laughs) I'm hoping I make it through the whole hour with you all, but I might might break at some point.
0: Yes, if you hear windows opening, it's just Emily like sticking her head out the window in the middle. of. <laughs> totally understand. Um, also want to welcome back to the show. Well, actually, now Attorney General Charity Clark, the last time you were on the show, um, Charity, you were candidate That's for right. Attorney General. So congratulations. Glad you can be here. Thank you. I'm
2: so glad to be here.
0: And then our final guest, uh, also, welcome back to the show, Karen Tronsgard Scott, who is the executive director of the Vermont Network, which is working for a violence-free Vermont. And uh, so glad you can join us again, Karen.
3: Delighted to be back, Olga. Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Well, I'm I'm really um, excited. Is the wrong word because we are going to be talking about domestic violence in Vermont. So. Excited isn't the right word, but I'm glad you're here because um, I had a little aha moment uh, earlier this week, um, saw on on Attorney General's website that uh, the Domestic Violence Fatality Review Commission's annual report was out on the number of fatalities in Vermont. And I was like, this is an annual report. How did I go through like 13 years of journalism and never see this report? So this is new for me. And I'm really glad that both of you can be here and and talk about it. Um, Because as, as I saw in the report, my biggest takeaway is that we have a pretty solid trend in Vermont of at least half our fatalities, half our homicides, um, are usually related to domestic violence, which that to me is a pretty hefty number. Um, I would love to hear from one of you, for the sake of listeners, just to kind of give us some background on who's this commission and what's this report? <clears throat>
2: yeah, I'm happy to do that, Olga. Um, so this this commission was created by statute. So the legislature created this commission and essentially what it, it did was it... Um, compiled a group of stakeholders, there are 17 people, and it's really whoever you might think of who would have uh, knowledge and information and interest in this topic. It's prosecutors, law enforcement, um, domestic violence, nonprofit, a survivor, um, Department of Health, and a judge. All of these people come together every year. They review the fatalities sent to them by the chief medical examiner that happened and only closed cases. So an open case isn't reviewed, but the closed cases are are sent to the commission. They're reviewed and analyzed, and they identify trends, and then they identify recommendations. And those recommendations and trends are compiled compiled in a report, um, which I think is really well done, and sent to the governor, the legislature, and others. Um, this commission is housed in the attorney general's office and chaired by an assistant attorney general. Um, in our office who's been doing this work for decades and is really wonderful. Um, One thing that I really like about, just as a kind of summarize, one thing I really like about this model and the way it's been executed is that the recommendations are based on the review, so the actual fatality. And that means that they're often very specific, so it's not like a lot of It's overwhelming, this topic is overwhelming. And it would be easy to um, be overwhelmed, but because of the way that this is set up, the recommendations are very specific and therefore, in my view, very doable, very achievable. And I think that means their potential to be very effective, this this system. So it's over 20 years it's been in the making.
0: Thank you, Charity. Karen, anything you wanna add?
2: Um, I wouldn't
3: add anything except for how grateful we are for these 17 people who have done this work year in, year out. They spend an entire year examining uh, these situations, talking to, to family members and survivors, talking to investigators, and they do such an incredibly thorough job of taking a look at the factors that that preceded the homicide and then the results of the homicide. And uh, I agree with A.G. Clark, the the recommendations are absolutely doable, but also their, um, their, their recommendations, because they come from all these folks who have so much expertise, we can, we can know that these are recommendations, if enacted, will actually have an
1: impact.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. Emily, anything you wanna add right now?
1: Um, I just really appreciate that we're having this conversation. I remember, Charity, when you were running for office, you talked about sort of what the difference would be if you were elected. And I feel like this is the one of the first big splashes that I've seen you make as AG. and it's calling attention to this like essential part of our society's dysfunction and violence that we don't talk about as much as we should. It you know, is usually the network and the network partners and that's who comes on the show to talk about it and like we do it. Um, but really to make it clear that this is a societal problem. Um, I really appreciate that. And you know, over the last year, we've talked on this show a few times off and on about how community violence is framed um, in the media, among lawmakers, for political gain, and how in Vermont, like even you know, if you dig deeper in, even into some of the headlines, it's like paragraph six where you realize that it was intimate partner violence and not like some random shooting on the street by strangers. And just like how the reset that we need as a community, as a legislative body to be actually grappling with what is rather than the stories that we have about it. So thanks you both for coming on the show.
2: If I can add to that, I I realized when I was campaigning especially that people wanted to talk about public safety a lot, but they weren't even considering domestic violence as a part of that. And I started saying, every time we talk about public safety, I'm gonna talk about domestic violence because that is Mm. a huge part of public safety. It's just, it happens behind closed doors. It's an epidemic that's happening behind closed doors. And so we don't give it enough attention in my view. And the statistic that we have is that there every year are 40,000 victims of domestic and sexual violence in Vermont, which is a humongous number of people. And we should be talking about it every time we talk about public safety.
0: I would appreciate uh, going through some of the statistics in the report, if you don't mind. Because one thing I think, or or two things that that stood out to me after that um, the nearly half our homicides are related to domestic violence, um, the other statistics that, that stood out to me was just there there was a dive into the demographics and like the ages of both victims and perpetrators were like babies to to elders um and and also how how high our numbers were around intimate partner violence but also within families violence within families so would would either of you be able to talk to some of those statistics
3: Go ahead, go
2: ahead, H-R. I I was going to defer to Karen because um, <laughs> she had the benefit of being a part of the commission uh, and not on the campaign trail like I was <laughs> for so much of that year.
3: Hmm. Well, I'm happy to talk about um, the data that was included in the report. You are right; the range is is huge because domestic violence is something that happens. Um, it really can happen in any household. It can happen with anyone, and. The, the, you know, the reality is that, um, it, 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 as uh, Representative Kornheiser said, domestic violence is, we find it sitting at the root of so much mm-hmm. that's happening in our communities, not only violence in our communities, but also homelessness, mm-hmm. also substance use disorder, also human trafficking, also uh, child abuse and neglect, also, um, I mean, just everything, it's so pervasive, and, so, and I think because it's so pervasive, and we're on the cutting edge of really changing how we think about it. Mm-hmm. It is easy to feel very overwhelmed, as Attorney General Clark said. Um, the The other thing that I think is important for us to know is that it is so pervasive in Vermont, but Vermont is not an outlier. It feels like we must have the, the you know, we must have more domestic violence than any, any place else in the country. We don't. We're quite normal. And um you know what we do have in our in our uh, in our homes are we have you know forty percent of our own firearms, mm-hmm. and so there's a direct relationship between the presence of a firearm in the home and the risk for homicide. And we see that in uh, more than fifty percent of domestic violence homicides, a firearm is the is is the the weapon that's used to commit the homicide. So that's a, I think that's a very important thing for us to understand. We also know that um, in terms of the in terms of the data. That there's the uh, as Attorney General Clark said, 40,000 40, Vermonters a year is what is, is the estimate. Our 15 member organizations, those organizations that provide direct services to victims of domestic and sexual violence across our state, serve on average around 8,000 people a year. And so we know that the vast majority of people are not coming out uh, and seeking services it's, uh, for all the good reasons. Uh, But, you know, 8,000 people a year are accessing services and and so and our programs tell so this is I'm going to get a little in the weeds it's a little nuanced but our programs tell us that between 60 and 80% of those 8,000 people do not enter the criminal justice system they don't call the police, Mm -hmm. so that's so hold on Mm -hmm. to that number, because when you look at the police data, domestic violence is the number one call. So it's it's really I mean the the data is really compelling. And what we do know is that people don't call the police for many, many good reasons. Some of some, you know folks don't want the police. they don't imagine the police could help. They've had bad experiences. they've there's you know, an outstanding warrant. there's you know, all the things you because when you call the police, you essentially give up a lot of agency because the police step in, they do their jobs. Mm-hmm. So the so the question then becomes, you know, uh, what's the pathway to helping uh, all the people that don't call the police. And when they, when people do call the police, it's absolutely essential that the police go to the call and know what we're doing. And so, so, you know, this, this report comes out at a really compelling time where the law enforcement community, the the Department of Public Safety has also just developed a tool for taking a look at the frequency of their calls, this hotspot tool. Uh, It's a dashboard. And you can see you know, with stark clarity, the number of domestic violence calls that our police are answering. And so we want to make sure that our law enforcement officers know exactly what they're stepping into and to know exactly how to um, step between the possibility of uh, a, a, a domestic violence situation that is non-lethal uh, and one that is.
0: Thank you, Karen. Um, you've mentioned a couple times and 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 Emily said it very well about reframing how we think about domestic violence. What, and any of you, what do you feel are um, the stories that are being told and what needs to be reframed, reframed? What, where in our thinking or where in our approach do we need to flip a switch?
1: I think Karen's mm-hmm. been thinking about this question for your entire career. So I'd love to <laughs> 31 <laughs> years this year, I'm, uh, I'm happy to
3: start, but um, I'm very interested to hear, hear, to hear what attorney general Clark has to say. So I'm going to be critical of this movement that I work in just briefly for, for around the past 40 years, long before I joined the movement, we've really thought that the best way to talk about this was to talk about domestic violence in terms of the the uh, of just how outrageous it is. It is really outrageous to think about living in a home where you're held captive, where you're unsafe, where your children are not safe, your pets are not safe. It is an outrage. But expressing that outrage has not been a, an effective way to engage, com- it's a community problem. So it's not been an effective way to engage our communities in conversations about how do we prevent domestic violence because it is a preventable social condition. And so the network has really, we've really done a lot of thinking about this and talked to a lot of survivors who let us know that we were presenting just part of the story, just just a small fraction of the story. The story is that domestic violence is indeed devastating and domestic violence homicide is the most devastating the impact on on the families, on the communities, all of that. But also there are incredible stories of hope and resilience out there, of survivors who have left an abusive relationship and gone on to be, you know, to live joyful, complete lives. And there are stories of hope and resilience about the people who cause harm. There are stories about many, many, many people who have been violent and coercive in their relationships who find a different way to deal with all of that and change their behavior. So we're talking about that as well. And we're also talking about the need for the kinds of changes that are reflected in the recommendations in the report, which are as Attorney General Clark said, small changes, doable changes that will have a big impact.
2: I was gonna say it's important when you look at this topic to look at the historical context and think about what was happening even 50 years ago um, this was something that was not talked about. You could in many states you could legally rape your wife um, There was it was a totally different time we've been evolving and our knowledge has been evolving as the generations pass and we have a greater understanding of what this looks like and that this exists a great a greater acceptance that this does exist and we need to not be silent we need to talk about it and and you know we've reached also simultaneously, there has been an evolution of um, of criminal justice you know as a, as a separate issue. and I think those two things are evolving. these two topics are evolving simultaneously, and it's good for us to be talking about them and be I mean this would be a radical conversation fifty years ago for four women to be well, a podcast we couldn't imagine, but let's picture it <laughs> on the radio, the good old-fashioned radio having this conversation. I mean, we would be, it would be radical for for us. And so even the fact that this is a kind of you know, ordinary Wednesday morning for us to be having this conversation is kind of profound. Um, and I think that that's important to keep in mind when you think about the context. And perhaps, even when you think about this report, a lot has also changed in the past, you know, 20-ish years too. Thank you.
0: Um, Emily, anything you want to add?
1: Well, I mean, even last year when we were debating in the legislature, some changes, I think, that were recommended in the report. um, There were lawmakers who still seemed to think it was okay to rape their wives. They didn't, you know, describe it as rape, but what they described was rape of their wives. And so, like, I, you know, it's, it is important to remember that this is a long and complex conversation about sort of what is acceptable behavior, what is considered loving behavior, what is caretaking behavior, what is appropriate responses to fear and hurt and the world being a difficult place to live in um, and acknowledging, I think for many of us, it's really hard to imagine living in a safe home where things feel loving and supportive. Um, And so I do, you know, Karen, you know, coming up in with the outrage, I had the outrage, but, you know, once you start paying attention, there are middle, like everyone, you know, people have like a million places in their lives where there's like little pieces of this or that. Um, And I think when we come to those conversations with outreach rather than compassion and curiosity, and resilience i think it's really hard for each of us to be transforming our lives or um, communicate communicating lovingly to say our brothers or our neighbors who might be engaging in this behavior that escalates really quickly mm-hmm.
0: thank you emily i want in the second half of the show i want to talk about some of the rep- recommendations in the report but before we get to that what because we are touching on this this theme of reframing is our justice system really set up to effectively deal with domestic violence Oh, um, at every stage that law enforcement may interact with it? Um,
1: just I mean, that out I, the answer is no. And I'm sure there's a lot more words connected to the no that you two will both add. Um, but I'm really, you know, we're working on some legislation right now about enabling our restorative justice centers to work more deeply with these issues. And I have a lot of concerns about capacity on that. Um, so I'm just, yeah, really excited to hear your responses.
2: Well, I, I would say that when we when we talk about this issue, we always wanna be thinking of the survivors and what's best for them. And sometimes the law enforcement intervention is not what's best for them. So that's something that we have to keep in mind and they know what's best. So um, just having that survivor focused and centered approach is really important. Um, this is a complicated issue. I think we're really fortunate to have on this commission, you know, strong voices from law enforcement who are very engaged and very involved. Um, and I have been uh, lucky enough, um, Emily, to have visited uh, a, a pilot program working on in a restorative justice uh, model on domestic violence, and felt really inspired because what we know is that a huge percentage of Um, survivors are still living with their abuser. And the restorative model presents a a new way and in many other areas of of crime, an effective way at resolving, addressing and resolving um, a criminal situation like this. And I have a lot of hope that, uh, that the restorative justice model can be effective with domestic violence as well.
3: Yeah, I would agree with that. I, you know, as we we talked earlier about um, the historical aspect of this conversation and you know, back in the early 90s when uh, advocates were working with members of Congress including President Biden and and Senator Patrick Leahy to pass the Violence Against Women Act, they could not imagine a way to address domestic violence better than a criminal justice response. And it was the early 90s, you know, it was and 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 frankly, we didn't listen to a lot of communities that were doing uh, that were intervening with domestic violence in other ways within the community. We most of those communities were marginalized black and brown communities, indigenous communities. And so we we really missed the opportunity to have a more a more uh, broad approach to addressing domestic violence that gave survivors a number of options for addressing their violence. And so here we are today, you know, finally, thinking about how do we offer survivors all the options that they need. And in 20 years, we'll be asking ourselves, what were we thinking? We should have offered them this option and this option and this option, as well as a criminal justice response and a restorative justice response. But today, if we can offer them even one more viable pathway toward achieving the life that they want, then why wouldn't we do that? We can do it safely. We can do it effectively, uh, and we can do it um, by centering survivors. What
1: does it look like to do it safely and effectively?
3: Well, there's there's essentially four models that have been tested across the country. Um, circles of peace, which are what they, it's what they're doing in Hartford. Today, there's um, circles of support. There's programs that they offer. There's usually two circles: one for survivors, one for the person who's caused harm, filled up with community volunteers who have had specialized training. And um, and you know, there's a mythology that we force survivors and people who've harmed them to be in the same room. That's actually very seldom happens. Uh, But we want to make sure that if we're providing supports for somebody who's caused harm, that we're also providing supports for the survivor. And, and in many ways, more importantly, they do the same thing in Hartford. Survivors also have support systems in place. There's also family group conferencing. And I'm, I have to say, I'm not an expert on family group con- conferencing, but we have an international expert on family group conferencing here in Vermont, retired professor at um, University of Vermont, Gail Burford. And um, this, is a, this actually does, it's uh, used mostly with, uh, by DCF when, when there's children involved. And, um, and then the last thing that we can do is uh, kind of a more traditional psychoeducational group with the person who's, who causes harm. And we have those available in Vermont as well. All of those center the safety, they center uh, a relationship between the local domestic violence program and the, the, whatever entity is providing the services. And that communication is vitally important because that's where the safety planning uh, happens. We have to, say, I mean, I just have to say this, I, can't, I we we don't know how many homicides are prevented by the criminal justice system with domestic violence but we know that 50% of the homicides in this state are caused by domestic violence so there's certainly room for improvement.
0: <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Um oh shoot I had a question and it just went poof. Um hopefully it will will come back. We have just a few minutes um before the end of this this uh, session. So I wanted to touch base. What do we need to leave listeners with right now to help them um,
1: to help them understand the issue fully or um, be ready to step into supporting their community in some way on this. Go ahead, A.G. Clark, you've got this.
2: Well, I think the the awareness, if, if folks are listening to this and, and like others, they they are thinking, wow, I've never heard of this commission. I didn't realize this was such a widespread problem in Vermont. Um, it's wonderful to be educated and to educate yourself and also know that there are opportunities for you to volunteer, to get more involved and to educate yourself. We have of domestic violence, um, some information on our website but I bet the network has tons of resources for you Um, to help you become more educated and more engaged. And also, if you care about these issues, we're about to talk about the specific recommendations that are gonna be working their way through the legislature. Contact your legislator and say, you know, this is important to me and let them know how you feel about this issue that affects so many Vermonters.
0: Thank you. And thank you, Emily, for jumping in there. I guess my internet must have frozen. (laughs) So thank you. Everyone uh, stay tuned. The Montpelier happy hour on WVW 107.7 LP Prattapro will return in a moment. Welcome back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. If you're just joining us, this is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and I am speaking with Representative Emily Kornheiser, Attorney General Charity Clark, and Karen Tronsgaard-Scott, who is the Executive Director of the Vermont Network. Emily, what do we need to remind people of?
1: The views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests respectively, not their employer, nor the station, nor their neighbors.
0: Thank you very much. Um, The report that we're discussing, the Domestic Violence Fatality Review Commission's annual report that has come out of the AG's office uh, at the end of January, has a series of recommendations that uh, to the legislature, I was hoping we could dive into those now and, and help people understand like why these recommendations are the important ones for this time.
2: So I'll get get us started these recommendations were derived from the review of specific fatalities related to domestic violence. So they're very specific and they're just related to those. That's why you may be thinking, oh, this is the most important issue and it's not listed. It's because these really come from those specific um, cases that were reviewed. So I like to think of these as being in kind of two separate buckets. Um, One is a kind of operational bucket that relates to law enforcement and the other is more judiciary bucket. Mm -hmm. So there's, and there's two in in each bucket. The first one abroad, I, I wrote this down because I, they're, they're so in the weeds, I think it's helpful to think of them more broadly, but the first is to institute the best policies related to domestic violence uh, instance when a law enforcement officer or entity is involved. So best policy. So what does that look like? Well, as a starting point, we know that um, there are people who are working at Law enforcement agencies who may themselves be survivors for experiencing domestic violence and they need resources too. I mean, think about what that would be like if you were enduring domestic violence and you felt like if I call the police, it's it's my my colleagues, it's it's a whole different dynamic. So we want to make sure that support and the resources are, are there. Um, and and then the other recommendations relate to a specific policy that was created by the law enforcement advisory board. And the policy is, it's called the, it's the policy of what how to handle when a law enforcement officer is involved in domestic violence. So not every law enforcement agency has adopted that policy. So we want every law enforcement agency to adopt that policy. And then we want the uh, the LEAB the Law Enforcement Advisory Board to take a look at that policy which I think the last time it was updated was 2010 a long time ago make sure that it's looking great it's the best policy that that we have updated if necessary so those are the policy related recommendations when a law enforcement officer or agency is you know involved in domestic violence um, I'm going to stop there for questions and also to ask Karen if I missed anything on that recommendation oh all good. Okay. Should I go Um, on to number two? Oh, go ahead, Olga.
0: Just a clarifying question. Uh, You talk about the policy that you want the law enforcement board to review. Sounds like that's an existing, it's been in existence for a while. Yep. Okay.
2: That's right. Um, So the second policy, it relates to the criminal justice council. So as a refresher, it's the criminal justice council that, uh, you know, oversees discipline and licensing of law enforcement officers. So it's called the Criminal Justice Council. So the second broad theme um, is to empower the Criminal Justice Council to take disciplinary action against law enforcement officers who um, have misconduct related to domestic violence. And this really gets in the weeds, but for for one thing, um, we also want data reporting related to that. There's not enough data right now that could drive policy changes or you know inform us, inform the public. So we want them to be uh, collecting more data on the number of complaints, things like that. But also um, right now, when um, we we know this um, commonly as a you know restraining order, when someone goes to court to get a relief from abuse order, is what it's called. And that's not listed among the um, the things that can trigger a misconduct, um, uh, uh, disciplinary action by the council. So we would like that to change. And then um, restructuring the system of uh, generally in statute, like which kind of misconduct rises to the level of a disciplinary action by the council. So taking a look at that and restructuring it to make sure that domestic violence is included. One of the challenges um, there, I think traditionally, I'm guessing has been that a relief from abuse order is not done in criminal court. It's done in family in civil court in family court. And so um, I'm guessing that's part of the, the barrier, the, the hurdle that hadn't been crossed before, but it's time to acknowledge that that is misconduct. It should be considered and so we're asking legislature to make that change. Thank you. you Anything to add on that one? You know, the only thing I would
3: add, I I just appreciate the way you um, explained all of that, Attorney General Clark, so clear, even for me. Um, The the thing that I would, I guess I would remind folks about is that even when, even though uh, relief from abuse orders are issued by a civil court, we have to understand that 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 the request for re- relief from abuse order is reviewed by the judge that there is evidence that's offered, evidence of violence, evidence of, of fear and threat, and in order to get a relief from a, a final relief from abuse order, you have to prove that there's a reason for it. And so when one is issued, we have to understand that the state has determined that a person is dangerous.
0: Mm-hmm. Um. And I, I think what I hear you saying, Karen, when you when you say that is um, that is something that perhaps law enforcement hasn't been considering when it's looking at how it disciplines its officers. Is that what I'm hearing?
3: No, uh, no, it's actually not what, what you're hearing. What you're hearing is that um, very often people think about protection orders as a he said, she said, and somehow the you can get a protection order and and people go to court and tell don't tell the truth about what's happened to them. It's actually a very rigorous process that um, you know, people are sworn to tell the truth about. And so it's not something that is uh, taken lightly and, it, and, and a relief from abuse order is not easy to get. Mm-hmm. I do also wanna say that um, as it happens, I am a member of the, of the Vermont Criminal Justice Council and I sit on the professional regulation committee where these, these actual situations are considered. And so it's very easy for me to support this recommendation because I have an insider view of what's going on. And, and I don't think that there is a lack of concern on the part of our law enforcement leaders at all. Nothing could be further from the truth. The, um, in fact, you know, it's been my experience. I've been, I've been actually really uh, heartened. To I've been on the council now for almost two years. I've been heartened with the way that the members of the council who, and, and so about 50% of the council today are law enforcement officers and about 50% are community members. And I have to say that the law enforcement officers are um, very keenly interested in addressing the needs of, of people who experience violence in our state. They're very keenly interested in elevating the, this profession in our state and they're very keenly interested in reform.
2: I found that too, Karen, I have mm-hmm. found the exact thing.
3: It's not 30 years ago.
2: Right, right. <laughs> uh, so shall I move on to recommendation number three? We've done half. The, the next one um, relates to a, a, a sort of specific circumstance. So when a prosecutor is bringing a charge, there there's different options. And what we have found with juveniles who are um, in the situation of intimate partner violence is that um, prosecutors would be inclined, um, based on our current system, where we treat juveniles differently from adults, to bring a charge for aggravated assault instead of aggravated domestic assault. And the reason is because one goes to juvenile court and the other goes to regular criminal court. So we want those to be aligned so that when there is a, a situation where there is domestic violence, all of the other supports and systems and what have you are triggered so that the case is treated as a domestic, which it is, rather than just a regular aggravated assault. So that's just kind of aligning the reality of what's happening in in the world with what what we know is best, which is to have all of the um, the supports in the system that we traditionally have for domestic violence apply when it is a juvenile. Mm-hmm. So that's recommendation number three. I told you we would get into the weeds. We're in the weeds.
1: No, I love it. Right. I just, I want to clarify when we talk about juveniles, are we talking about folks under 22, under 25, under 18? In this context, Karen? I think it's under 22. Oh. Um, yeah, I, think that's helpful. I also don't have it right at my fingertips. Yeah. Yep. I think that's it's helpful for question. listeners who might think that we're talking about fifteen-year-olds. So
2: yeah, yeah, usually we—that's what we're talking about. Okay, last one. This is another one where we're we're adapting to the, the world of today. So um, after a final, this is in the relief from abuse context. Okay, so your your uh, the final order um, has been issued on the the subject for the the relief from abuse. And traditionally, you're in court um, after the judge grants the order, and the um, subject of the order receives the piece of paper, here you go, here's here's the rules, here's the order. Well, we now are seeing in this brave new world that that hearing might be attended by the parties on WebEx on a video, just like we're here today on a video um, and so that final order is not so easily able to be delivered, although the defendant is there watching and participating um, via video. And so the sheriff would have to go out and serve the order. And we found that to be, have a number of problems. And it seems very unnecessary since the defendant was there, you know, in, in the room, if you the virtual room. And so um, the final recommendation tries to address that by saying, if the defendant is in attendance at the final hearing, there is no need to serve the defendant with the final order.
1: They're considered served. Yeah. And, and in terms of a um, the final order, is it usually people have sort of temporary orders that expire and then there's a final order? Can you explain a little bit of that process to us?
2: Mm-hmm. The, the first order um, is a temporary order and, and within 14 days there has to be a hearing for the final order. Um, what we have found, I mean, this comes up a lot because what what we see is that after the the temporary order, um, between the temporary order and the final order, is a very dangerous time for yes. the survivor, and um, and so the final order often doesn't happen because the survivor it's no longer safe for them, um, and they've made that choice for themselves and and made their uh, use their judgment to decide I I'm not going to proceed, um, and it can be very frustrating. For people who care, for people who want to um, uh, want them to proceed, and but that it's not so simple. It's complicated, and we need to trust the survivor.
0: Thank you for these recommendations. The recommendations have been made. What happens now? Like, how do they move forward?
2: Well, I am so happy to say that um, you know when when we announced this report, we had a press conference in the State House, and I had several legislative leaders um, behind me supporting the recommendations, and I'm just thrilled by their support and uh, leadership. And we have actually already testified in the House Government Operations Committee on the first two recommendations related to law enforcement. Um, I testified, and Karen's colleague from the network also testified, Um, And we're currently working on specific language that would become the bill um, that would hopefully pass and become statute.
0: Thank you. Um, I have a couple other questions, but Karen, before I move on, anything you wanted to add about the recommendations or?
3: Uh, No, I just wanna thank Attorney General Clark for the clarity that she used to explain them all. They are deep in the weeds and um, especially A.G. Clark, uh, I really appreciate the way you talked about the difference, the way that the reasons that folks will file a temporary for a temporary protection order and then, and then step back from that, that final hearing. Thank you so much.
2: Of course.
0: So one of my questions is, I know these recommendations were very specific to what the committee or what the review process found as far as the the homicides um that were reviewed but this is my kind of overarching question you know domestic uh, violence it it hits you know it affects people's safety but it can also affect their um economic life it can affect their social life it can affect where they live or can't live um Looking out at the patchwork of policies that we have around um, supporting people uh, who are experiencing domestic violence, are there other places, gaps we need to fill in with our policies to make sure that um, people survive not just on their personal safety, but their emotional safety, their mental safety, their economic safety, um, their housing, that type of thing?
1: Well, I have an example. So the Family Medical Leave Insurance Bill, H66, that we introduced two weeks ago and we had a press conference for yesterday on the anniversary of the federal Family Medical Leave Bill um, has two components that I think are really important in this context. One is the job protections that are built into the federal FMLA laws, um, which extend job protections for folks to take unpaid leave for a number of situations, we're extending that in Vermont to include safe leave. So if someone needs to take time off because they're experiencing domestic violence or intimate partner violence, um, their job would be protected in that case. And then second piece is that we also extend the insurance program in that situation as well. So folks can take paid leave as well um, for a certain period of time with full wage reimbursement because It's hard to go to work when your entire life is upended and you're scared. So um, it, I think it prevents some of the um, descent into poverty um, that can really keep folks in situations or keep folks scared in situations.
2: The other topic that I mean, we've so many have been talking about, and just generally, is housing. It's mm-hmm. really. Um, <clears throat> a challenge for for so many people in Vermont right now. Well, imagine if you were in an unsafe home and you feel it's just not possible for you to find another home that, that is safe. And, um, you know, there's, of course, organizations in Vermont that offer safe place on a temporary basis. Um, and I'm sure Karen can probably tell us all, all about their work. But you know, the housing problem is another problem that if fixed is going to have a positive impact on survivors of domestic violence. One
3: hundred percent. One hundred percent. There's a number of bills that are coursing their way through the legislature, uh, in addition to the one that Representative Kornheiser referenced. There's uh, just yesterday a bill that will interrupt the uh, practice by some people who cause harm in their relationships of, um, of actually using the court system as a tool for further abuse and coercion. So that just passed out of the House Judiciary yesterday, which is good news. This bill that you referenced, H- H41, uh, Rep. Kornheiser, is uh, important for us to provide survivors with options around using restorative justice process. There's all the housing bills, there's all the um, you know paid family leave is important to us. There's just many, many things. And then if I could just speak on the federal level, you know, the Fifth Circuit just ruled that there is not a compelling reason uh, for the confiscation of firearms when there's a protection order um, released, uh, um, issued. And so that will be headed, oh. that, that case will be headed to the Supreme Court, and that's going to have big implications for everybody. We're We're still, you know, working really hard to make the argument in Vermont. That there is a direct relationship, as I said earlier, between the presence of firearms in the home and the likelihood of for serious injury or or death. And um and the state, when the state issue, again, when the state issues over protection order, that's the state of Vermont saying this person is dangerous. We need to be thinking about how to um mitigate harm. And the protection order is a tool for doing that. And you know, if we can, you know, the way we're looking at this is to temporary removal of firearms related to the issuance of a protection order, then uh, we feel
1: like our families and our communities will be safer. And isn't that what we all want? Mm -hmm. Can we dig into the firearms piece just for a minute? Um, Because I think sometimes people might imagine that when we're talking about firearms and fatality in the home in these situations, it's about just someone shooting someone else, right? Um, but it's what a gun does in terms of someone feeling afraid and perhaps not taking actions. And then perhaps there's you know um, more direct physical violence like strangulation, but the gun is what keeps someone there being strangled, right? Or um, someone uses the gun that's in the home for self-protection and then um, things go awry and the person loses custody of that you know um someone else takes the gun and so i think just sort of firearms um capacity for escalation of a situation is an important thing for folks to be thinking about in this context it's not just sort of the very immediate um use
3: yeah it's not it's not my opinion there's yeah, so yeah, exactly
1: to be yes. true yeah
3: so you know we we if we follow the research, you know, it leads us to to the conclusion that uh, the presence of a firearm is one of the key factors in, in a resultant homicide. I, you know, the, the research, there's a, there's a tool called the Lethality Assessment Program, and it's a series of 11 questions that have been deeply researched and validated and all the things that researchers do that shows a direct correlation between the presence of a firearm, between a history of strangulation, uh, between threats for, um, for killing for killing the victim or killing or suicide. Mm-hmm. And also, you, know, some things you wouldn't think about, things like are the children in the home stepchildren? Do they belong to the, to the um, person who's causing the harm or are they um, somebody else's children? And, and when that when the, that when they're stepchildren, there's a higher likelihood of serious harm and, and, and homicide. I mean it's very compelling information, but you know again, if we just look at the research, the research tells us uh, where we can where we can make small changes that will make huge differences.
2: Emily, something you said makes me we haven't used this the, these terms, but it's important to remember for for folks who are aren't as familiar with this issue that domestic violence is all about power and control, and so a firearm is used to exert power and control over the survivor, and in so many cases, it's not actually used to commit homicide. It's used for that other purpose. And, um, it's, it's good. Once you are aware of that concept of what domestic violence means and what's driving it, you, you might see it in other places, um, like that, you know, super attentive partner who's always picking up their partner after work, you know, that's control. That's, it seems sweet. Actually, maybe there's more to that, you know, and being more aware of those kinds of circumstances.
3: And if I could just add one more thing, since we're on this topic of firearms, I I think it's really important for us to understand that the vast majority of Vermont uh, gun owners are safe, careful, would never use the gun for anything other than perhaps self-protection or hunting or things like that. That's not who we're talking about. We're talking about people who have been identified by the state as being really dangerous. And, we, and the research tells us that when that really dangerous person has access to a firearm, that the, the danger level in, increases exponentially. And A.G. Clark's right. The, I've talked to hundreds of survivors over the course of my career who talked about all they had to do was lay the gun on the table. And I knew that I needed to stop whatever I was doing to not complain, to be quiet. And when And, and when they lay the gun on the table, all I'm thinking about is how do I keep my kids from getting killed? Yeah, that's what we're talking about. Thank
0: you. Um, we talked a little bit about firearms. I just want to hammer home because we've been talking about policy. Um, are there policies that we still need to put into place to help alleviate this issue around firearms, or are there policies that are in place? Um, that maybe aren't being followed. I'd just love to kind of close the loop on that.
2: Well, I, I will just say um, safe storage can be an issue in uh, relief from abuse orders, and I'm really pleased that the, um, the state police and my office and, and others really were involved with creating a program that's a partnership between um, us and local firearms dealer or federally licensed firearms dealers. There's currently eight around the state. There's geographic diversity there. So that when a subject of a relief from release order has to surrender firearms, they have a place to do it. Um, that those, those small businesses that are firearms dealers are really the experts on safe storage. So it's really happy. And that just happened. So I, I highlight it as a policy that I'm really pleased with put in place and, and hopefully will um, you know, help help in this area. Thank you.
3: And then I just might add this, you know, it is easy for us to imagine that uh, Vermont is in this terrible situation and we don't have nearly enough policies. But the truth is, is that Vermont is a leader in our country around passing laws that make a big difference. And we uh, have such an incredibly healthy political discourse in this state. Uh, You know, we can we can find ways to get to an end where there's great uh, hope for the impact of laws on survivors' safety and on their lives, as well as uh, on the lives of people who cause harm. So, you know, the 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 good news is that we're all in conversation with each other. This is not an issue that is um, unknown to policymakers. It's not an issue that's unknown to folks who work in the criminal justice system. And we're all talking all the time about how do we get to our shared goals? So we have shared goals, which is you know, in today's political environment, is pretty amazing, uh, and um, there's there's all the reasons to um, hope that we'll continue to do better with this issue, and there's all the reasons for us to hope that we can get this domestic violence homicide rate uh, frequency rate down.
0: Karen, uh, thank you for that. We are out of time on the Montpelier Happy Hour. I want to thank uh, Attorney General. Uh, Charity Clark for joining us, as well as Karen Tronsgard-Scott, Executive Director of the Vermont Network. Um, and I forgot at the top of the show to remind folks that you can find us wherever you find your podcasts, as well as uh, thank you to BCTV, who who gets our videos up on many uh, peg stations around Vermont. Um, Emily, if people need to find out more about you, where do they go?
1: Folks can go to emilycornheiser.org and find links to all of the places
2: you can get in touch with me.
0: Thank you. And, Charity, if people want to follow the work of the AG's office, how can they do that?
2: Well, we have basic social media channels. I think it's, you know, AG Charity Clark on Instagram um, and something similar, no, it might be a little bit different. The best place is to go to our website, and on, you can find on the bottom there all of our social media channels. And that's, um, uh, ego.vermont.gov. Thank you. And Karen, if people
0: want to follow the work of the Vermont Network.
3: Can go to our website at uh, www.vtnetwork.org. And also there they'll find an interactive map so that if, if folks need help, they can find a local domestic violence organization that can give them all the help that they would need. Uh, and then, of course, we're on Instagram and um, Facebook and just look under VT Network.
0: Thank you everyone take care. Have a good
2: weekend. Thank you. Thank you.